I think this has been one of the fastest growing demand curve in the history, I, if I may say so, in the history of technology evolution. I don't think we've seen such of acceleration in terms of not just pilots, but in terms of demand and the num the demand you receive from across various verticals. Usually, in the past, technology was you would see this this whole curve, and the adoption is usually from you know the early adopters of technology because they are the ones that run their their technology business like companies like ourselves, or they use technology very heavily to drive their businesses. But this time around, we're seeing this across the board from the cities, corporations, public sectors across the world, Australia to Dubai to, to Middle East to, to Southeast Asia. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. Thanks again for making this one of the most downloaded podcasts about the future of work. If you enjoy what we do, please like, comment, and share in your favorite podcast app. And we'll keep sharing amazing conversations like the one we have for today. I'm your host, Dan Turchin, CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. I'm also an investor and an advisor to more than 30 AI-first companies and, as you know, a firm believer in the power of technology to make humans better. If you're passionate about changing the world of work or maybe just looking for your next adventure, let's talk. Now, we learn from AI thought leaders weekly on this show. And, of course, the added bonus, you get one AI fun fact each week. Today's fun fact, Nature Online summarized an interesting academic paper that compared ChatGPT's output versus human students in 32 university level courses. It found the work was indistinguishable, which sparked new debate about how AI is introducing different learning models. The authors go on to say current AI text classifiers can't reliably detect ChatGPT's use in schoolwork due to both their propensity to classify human written answers as AI generated, as well as the relative ease with which AI generated text can be edited to evade detection. My personal commentary, I hope studies like this one are a wake-up call for tech laggards in education. Restricting access to LLMs in the classroom is not the answer. A combination of modern ethics codes and more presentation-driven assignments that rely on critical thinking skills are the path forward. As always, we'll link to the full article in today's show notes. Now, shifting to this week's conversation... Wipro is one of the largest providers of tech and tech services in the world, with more than 250,000 employees. It was started in 1945 and is now the third largest software company in India, with a market cap of more than $27 billion. We're lucky to be joined today by the leader driving Wipro's technology vision. Subha Tattavarti joined Wipro as Chief Technology Officer in March 2021, after a distinguished career in tech leadership roles at companies like Walmart and PayPal, where she led the product, data, and infrastructure teams. Suba holds a master's in computer science. She's an avid hiker and enjoys trail running and books on philosophy. And without further ado, Suba, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. It's started by having you share a bit more about your background and, uh, of course, how you got into this space. Thank you, Dan. Um... 
I think uh, you already shared a significant amount of information about me. Um, so what I will add a little bit is uh, what drives me at here at Wipro um, and, and what's exciting for me. Um, I started my technology career some 25 plus years ago in quarter I can't even imagine squatted for a decade um, at AOL. Um, and what we did then at that time was anything but LLMs and Gen AI, uh, but distributed computing and parallel processing and statistical analysis of large sets of data, which essentially is what is today's LLM. Um, at that time, we didn't have the kind of compute power we have today. Um, um, some of our jobs, I remember I was working in one of the largest financial institutions at that time in the early part of my career. Some of our statistical modeling um, uh, jobs ran for two days um, in largest one of the largest Unix and uh, Linux server farms. Uh, from there to where we are today, it is fascinating and and I've seen multiple revolutions, internet revolutions in the 90s um, to um, web revolution to uh, iPhone and mobile revolution and now today LLM revolution. So that's very exciting to me and to be part of that journey. Um, specifically at Wipro, what's really exciting for me is uh, the fact that uh, we have this massive vantage point. The fact that we work with 25 plus verticals and 1400 enterprise customers is what is so exciting because you take a new technology like uh, Gen AI and then you see applications across various verticals and various layers of stack per vertical because every vertical may have a slightly different stack. You know, it's 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 an exciting journey and I'm I'm super enthused and pumped about where we are headed and, and where we think we can take this technology to solve for real human problems. You mentioned some of the major platform shifts over the last couple of decades. Is the current shift to Gen AI just another platform shift or is there maybe something different this time around? I think this is something different this time around. I don't believe it's just a pure platform shift. Mobile, I would categorize as platform shift. It's a good question. How you distribute and consume information translates into how then you use that information to create transactions and commerce that's the fundamental shift we saw in in the mobile revolution. I think this is going to be a bit more than just platform revolution. I think this is going to shift the way we fundamentally do work. An example of how today's and future generations will learn information and, and, and how they create a com community and a conducive environment for learning and sharing. You just talked about how it's impacted. And, and I think that is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, what is quite surprising is the quality of code, as an example, generated by LLMs. Um, we always thought that reasoning and reasoning, not necessarily critical thinking as much, reasoning is primarily a human 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 uh, trait. But the fact that LLMs are able to create a fairly good piece of code is, is surprising. And the surprising part of it is um, that it is fairly accurate as well. And it is tireless. That's the scary part because humans are get tired. We, we don't have the capacity to, 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 to produce high quality output consistently every second of the day, whereas LLMs can. And that's the scary part of it. So I do believe that 
they will this is a little bit more than just a platform shift this is going to change the way we do business this is going to change the way we lead our lives we gather information we harness information and how we consume that information you're talking to a lot of enterprise technologists who are trying to figure out how best to make use of the technology maybe could you pick one example of some of the inbound demand that you're getting from your you mentioned 1,400 enterprise customers. What are people talking about? Yeah, this is fascinating. Well, firstly, there's a lot of confusion. And I think that's because exactly for the same reasons. Is it some of these studies come out and then they talk about how it's able to um, score better than MCAT scores or, or SAT scores? And suddenly you have another study that comes out where some there is a breach of, of enterprise information. So there's a lot of confusion first. So we see a lot of our engagements with our enterprise customers where there is education is a very, very um, strong component. Education on both the goods and the bads and the unknowns, mostly. Right now, it's a lot of it is unknowns. Um, the second area we see a lot of um, excitement or POCs right now and pilots is around um, where LLMs have the, the the strength, which essentially is around um, customer service, marketing, uh, more and more about um, uh, operations. Um, how can we reduce my operating co- operations cost? Uh, L1 support, um, as an example. Um, some areas of uh, interesting in, in because we believe in eating our own dog food. We're actually not only uh, experimenting and advising our customers, or experimenting with and advising our customers, but we're also experimenting it within our own enterprise. We have two hundred fifty thousand employees worldwide. We have one of the largest operations in the you know if you really think about it in terms of number of employees. So some of the really interesting use cases for us are on the HR side, on policies, on knowledge, knowledge synthesis side of things. As an example, our sales team is using our internal platform, which we built on orchestrating across multiple LLMs because some LLMs are better at certain um, use cases and certain precisions on certain LLMs is different. Um, We realized that our, our sales cycles, especially we can synthesize large volumes of data and, and create summaries, and, and that summary is fairly accurate. Even if it's at 70%, it's reducing our cost, which means it's our productivity is going up 3x, 5x, 10x in some cases. And, and, and we're also experimenting with some interesting and harder use cases, like what does it mean for uh, application development with some of our customers? Um, how fast can we can we um, hope, create um, assets? So, so those are some areas that we're seeing early indicators. But I believe this is very, very, very early. A lot of pilots, a lot of experimentation. Uh, what will be interesting is when we start to scale and productionized. Uh, and that is when I think um, things will get very interesting. Yeah, it's a good point you make. As AI vendors, we assess the maturity of the market based on who the demand is coming from. And specifically, is it coming from the business where there's a defined success metric and a use case, or is it coming from R&D or from from the tech team where maybe it's more of a science lab? We're only 10 months in to ChatGPT being launched. So you made the point, you know, a lot of these are kind of POC or proof of concept kinds of projects. But where would you say we're at 10 months in to this global experiment in terms of uh, the maturity of the demand? 
I think this has been one of the fastest growing demand curve in the history, I, if I may say so, in the history of technology evolution. I don't think we've seen such of acceleration in terms of not just pilots, but in terms of demand and the num the demand you we see from across various verticals. Usually, in the past, technology was you would see this this whole curve, and the adoption is usually from you know the early adopters of technology because they are the ones that run their their technology business like companies like ourselves, or they use technology very heavily to drive their businesses. But this time around, we're seeing this across the board from the cities, corporations, public sectors across the world, Australia to Dubai, to to Middle East, to, to Southeast Asia. So from a demand perspective, I think it's it's probably one of the fastest in terms of wanting to adopt because recognition that this will impact their business is is universal in terms of maturity of technology sustained maturity and sustained adoption and then really understanding whether this will re- change if once you starts to scale operationalize productionalize and scale it what kind of issues you may you, you may encounter and i don't think we've reached that stage right now um and it's too early for us to reach that stage so to answer your question from a from a maturity of adoption, I think it's probably one of the fastest in terms of adoption or experimentation um, in terms of truly operationalizing it. And it's 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 still a little bit ways ahead, but I don't think it's going to be 15 years. It's all it's going to be even five years. Probably it's going to be a year or two at the most. You mentioned some very real concerns that enterprises have going from this kind of experimentation phase to maybe full-fledged production. And I'll just, you know, pose a few in addition to those that you mentioned. You know, the the LLMs can hallucinate or make up facts and they can share copyrighted information and they can potentially leak company specific intellectual property out to the foundation model. They can be expensive depending on how you use them and how you optimize your tokens. So that's, you know, just a first pass set of valid concerns. In your estimation, what what is holding back broader full enterprise adoption? And either any of those or something else that comes to mind that you think is going to unlock additional value? I don't think there is anything holding back. Like early experiments, our early experiments, we are noticing drifts. So when you operationalize any technology, predictability is one of the important factors, right? For instance, when you when you when you move money in your bank account, you expect that the money will land from one account to another, right? So there is some sort of predictability in every operation. And 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 I think that sustained predictability is important for any new technology to be adopted worldwide or at scale. We, it's yet to be seen what that sustained predictability manifests itself as when you operate with LLMs in use cases that are that that require that. And hence, you see early adopters like marketing and sales, and because you 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 still have a human interaction uh, where you can validate information, right? Whereas in operations or infrastructure operations, where you have five nines, and and it, it is still possible. I mean, I've, there are AI infrastructure companies that are autonomous, 
you know, autonomous cloud companies out there. But 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 what does it really look like when you start to bring in LLMs? And we, we don't know that yet, right? So so that's one. The second thing I would slightly you know shift the conversation um, is is around uh, the risks because all these productivity gains that we talk about um, in operations through LLMs or Gen AI, it's not just LLMs, actually Gen AI, is also true for productivity gains for bad actors. DDoS, account, DDoS uh, attacks will become more efficient. Phishing attacks will become even more efficient. You don't even need human human intervention. I mean, or the entire operation can potentially be so well-crafted that it becomes more, um, more, not only easier, but to scale very, very fast. So I think there is whole productivity and operations curve, but then there is this whole security curve. And I think I would suggest, I would probably anticipate a lot more focus on not now, but in the next 15 months to two years, a lot more focus on this side of the adoption curve, where there is whole defense mechanisms using Gen AI to basically counter Gen AI attacks. And that will be another fascinating area of study. But to come to your point, I think that predictability, that sustained predictability in when when you operate technology um, at scale is, I think, where where we still don't know and there is some hesitation, I believe. It's a good way to position it, the sustained predictability, but also thinking about how the risks are accelerated as well as the rewards. So if you ruled the world and you could define the strategy for how we rein in the bad actors and accelerate these these positive use cases, what would you propose in terms of a regulatory framework to make these LLMs safer? For, for every enterprise? That's a great question, but it's also a very difficult question to answer. See, we don't know yet. And I would be I would be wrong if I were to propose A, B, or C. And there is the because we can talk about frameworks and regulatory measures, but that in itself is not going to cut it. We can talk about limited access, that's not going to work either. We have to figure out a solution that is nuanced and and does not restrict the benefits, as you said, and still create innovation and still able to kind of control. I, I don't know the answer really. I, I think it's it's going to evolve as a as as part of our of our uh, approach, more data is coming in as an example on uh, where, which use cases these generative AI works best. We will see a natural selection process as it happens to every technology. You know, what we saw with Web3, um, what happened, and um, I think a natural selection process will happen and it will evolve and mature. And I think this answer could be we will have more data to talk about what is the best framework in the next 15 months than in the last nine months. In nine months, I mean, again, we know the generative AI existed since 2018 when the first BART model came out, right, from Google, but but it has not taken the attention of the world by storm the way chat GPT has because of what it is able to do. And, and I think but the data isn't there yet. We don't know. So unfortunately, I won't be able to answer your question, even if I were ruling the world. 
because there is no data yet for us to be able to elegantly answer that question. When we have you back on the podcast, maybe A, you will then be ruling the world and B, we'll have more data and you can answer the question. How about that? <laughs> sure, works for me. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that's fascinating about Wipro is the global footprint. And you mentioned 250,000 employees and just you know an amazing legacy of technology innovation. Um, coming from India, I mentioned, I believe it's the third largest software company in India. Would love to get your global perspective. Is the Are the demand patterns from around the world similar to what we see in North America? We, we have an awful habit, certainly in the United States, of navel-gazing and thinking that everyone kind of looks looks like us, which I know is not the case. I'd love to get your, your global perspective on trends in, uh, in, in Gen AI. Yeah. You're absolutely right. One of the things that I, one of the exciting parts of my job is that it's such a global company. I've worked in the past uh, with four companies that were primarily focused for North America. And you're also right that the demand patterns are slightly, not slightly, somewhat different in, in other parts of the world. Most of, so it depends on the region, specifically around Gen AI, there are early adopters. Middle East is early adopter. And not, I'm not saying that other regions are lagging behind significantly, but in terms of, if you see in terms of global pattern, you see a lot of early adoption happening in areas that are rapidly developing, right? So that is one interesting part uh, or this, of the whole process uh, if, if you've seen in terms of just the Gen AI uh, demand. I see a lot of uh, early adopters from uh, sectors that are, you would not even believe the sectors that are early adopters, oil and gas, energy, um, some large telecom companies. The ones that uh, are most curious and most curious turn out to be more and more uh, governments. We have a lot of interaction with um, with uh, public sector in Europe. Uh, we have a lot of interaction with public sector sectors in Australia um, and in Middle East. Um, so the the interaction, curiosity, and uh, experimentation um, is across the board. Um, it's 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 this is one technology, unlike you know what we have saw with five G, unlike what we even saw with probably mobile and apps, where. Um, the curiosity and uh, demand is across the board, but specifically Middle East, Australia, and, and public sectors, I see. Very interesting. All AI comes down to really a data problem. And so conventional wisdom says whoever owns the data will end up having the ability to train more accurate foundation models faster for lower cost. Do you believe that ultimately in the Gen AI space, all the value will accrue to call it big tech, Microsoft and Google and Amazon, Apple, et cetera? Or is there room for not just adjacent large companies like Wipro, but maybe even startups to innovate when they don't own the underlying data? Absolutely. See, this is where someone said to me once when when this was literally the early days of uh, ChatGPT um, 3.5 announcement, our core businesses are still there. You still have a network that needs to exist. You still have to have compute that need to exist. You still have interesting business problems across different verticals, various verticals that still need to be solved for. 
what gen ai brings to you is ability to solve for those problems faster cheaper reduce time to market so firstly i want to make that statement it's not going to change the fact that we still run a retail as an example shop or because the problem in retail is primarily supply chain and experience you can use gen ai to create better experiences and faster uh, and with for low cost so i just want to make that statement first yes it'll fundamentally shift business models but the businesses will still remain the second part of it is yes there might be areas where more and more data whoever has more resources i wouldn't call data because open ai used publicly available data to train the model it wasn't nobody was stopping anyone else from doing that too right so so i don't think it's that skewed in terms of playing field but what is in- interesting is whoever has the most resources given how fast some of the next training um next models are coming out the next generation models are coming out i think will and and the focus will end up winning but i think if this is a game where we if we do play it right it will be a collective win for our generation and not an individual win that's what i firmly believe in yes some reports might come out that company a is winning the ai wars versus company b but eventually what will be interesting to see is how that translates into op- more operational optimized businesses i think everybody has a role to play i want to make yet another point what is fascinating is not about the llms itself now think about it right llms is one part of it how do you make sure there is quality assurance when you're using llms you know it's not the same as regular quality assurance anymore right how do you make sure that you have the right guard la- guardrails for biases and there is a massive opportunity for startups or companies like ours to kind of start playing in that area um not necessarily developing core llms but the adjacencies and that's what always fascinates me it's 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 are you the one that is providing the tools for the ones that are moving to california to dig for the gold or are you the one that is going to dig for the gold and i think i'm already always fascinated with the tool side of things and i think there is a massive opportunity for the next generation of uh, startups and and not just startups i mean any company to kind of innovate in you're talking to a lot of cios and ctos who are trying to define their own ai strategies what's your advice to them about how you pick the right business problem to solve see there's a fundamental philosophy i follow and and i think that's true for any cio and cto and we have and we have these conversations it primarily goes down to these three areas one is any cio is worried about two things one is top line growth and bottom line growth if i am looking at my own company that's what i'm constantly worried about or constantly that's where my head is obviously with anchoring in technology or whatever the latest evolution as an example what will genia have an impact on my business what kind of impact will it have on my business right um so anything that impacts your top line growth or bottom line growth you have to have a very very hyper focused or laser focused uh i view and an idea of what those problems are so that's one i need to you know how you be identify problems uh, second is most cios and ctos are when they start out it's all about the transformation journey right how are you going to transform the business to again impact top line growth and bottom line growth uh, and that principle comes and and this my second principle is about start from the areas of strength 
um, figure out what your core strengths are for your organization and make sure you double down as you're trying to fix the ones that actually are not working out for you. Because those kind of wins in the market, when you double down on the strengths, are going to accelerate your growth than trying to focus on what is not working. So that's the second piece. And the third piece I very strongly believe in is um, making sure that we are orchestrating across our ecosystem. The ecosystem partners that we create is actually is going to be super critical. Any contract, any negotiation, anything we, we term in terms of how we work with each other is fundamentally based on the fact that both parties have to feel that they're winning. Otherwise, there is no reason for us to do business with an enterprise, right? And that's true for any CIO and CTO who's looking at how do we partner with companies like Wipro or how do I partner with companies like other enterprises that are that have their core businesses as something else, but technology is a, is a driver for them. And that nourishing that ecosystem partnership um, is going to create a win-win situation where you're creating wins for each one of you, each each one of you. And then that collective win will help you transform faster, better, and grow your business faster and better. Um, so those are the kind of three principles I abide by. And then one of some most of those conversations are where where we end up I see that most of the CIOs and CTOs are also looking at these three factors. And and 90% of companies, at least I've seen in my own career, are the ones that have played these three areas fairly well um, and orchestrated these three areas um, in, in a more elegant fashion. We're almost out of time, but I'm not letting you off the hot seat without answering one last question for me. I mentioned maybe uh, maybe we'll have you back when you're the ruler of the world. And uh, let's say that's five years from now. Let's say we're talking... Uh, in September of 2028, I want to know what's what's one workplace behavior that will be common then that today in 2023 just seems like science fiction. I think it'll be our human interaction is going to fundamentally change, I think, I believe. Regardless of what we do, whether we are playing a sport, whether we are have social interactions or whether it's workplace, I think um, human interaction is the fundamental, fundamental thread, so to speak, that kind of ties everything together in this world. And I think businesses at workplace in terms of workplace interaction, how we how we interact with humans, how productivity across across the globe will manifest itself, will, will, will fundamentally change. Um, you know, we talked about this. I remember this two years ago when COVID happened. There was a lot of interesting ideas about move, people moving away and not needing office spaces. And now things are changing again. But I think in five years, we'll really know what that human interaction means to actually run a very productive enterprise. I also believe that um, in general, we talked about immersive worlds. Um, I think there will be yet another avatar of immersive workplaces um, that may not be the way it was first rolled out, but it might bring um, the globe close, the world closer. I do believe that there will be a lot of globalization, but with localization. I threw a lot of things at you, um, but I don't know if, if... But I do believe that the how we interact actually creates a better environment and better businesses. And I think that will fundamentally change. I like that vision for the future. It's optimistic. I firmly believe that as we interact with bots as co-pilots more and more, it's going to give us as humans an opportunity to redefine how we interact with each other. And I think it doesn't take the humanness out of work. In fact, it infuses more opportunities for more genuine connections that don't involve 
things that a bot can do for us. Yes. Uh, so, so I, for one, am on Team Human, and uh, I, I like, I like how you shared that vision uh, for what's ahead. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much for Dan for having me here. You bet. Anything else that you'd like our audience to know about Wipro or the good work that you and your team are doing? Yes. So you covered everything about Wipro, except for, in addition, I'll add one more part to it, which is that uh, it's uh, one of the reasons I joined Wipro is because it's uh, 66% of its profits go to a foundation. So we are one of the only companies in the world that, as an employee, I feel very proud to be part of. Uh, where every dollar I earn for the enterprise, I know that 66 cents goes to a good cause. And we run uh, some of the largest programs in the world when it comes to across the globe, comes to education, um, literacy, uh, healthcare, and so on and so forth. And um, that is one of the biggest reasons why I joined, but also one of the most uh, exciting uh, reasons for us to get this right. Because what what we do in our daily business and and get specifically anchoring around Gen AI, uh, we are not only a for profit non not for profit driven company, but we're also anchored in our values values of uh, sharing uh, with our community values that are anchored in doing the right by humanity. So so I think this whole revolution around Gen AI is also very fascinating for us from that angle uh, as well. Um, so just an interesting tidbit about Wipro for your audience. Thanks for sharing. That is unique in the tech community. Suba, I've really enjoyed this one. Thanks for hanging out and uh, I look forward to continuing the conversation another time. Thank you, Dan. Thanks. Excellent. Well, uh, that's all the time that we have for this week on AI and the future of work. As always, I'm your host, Dan Turchin from PeopleRain. And of course, we're back next week with another fascinating guest. <laughs>